Hey y'all, Brandon here. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Internal Budget. Really quick before we get to this week's episode with Sam Chang of the Broadscast, there is something that I, that I do feel obligated to touch on, and that is the Jake Furtanen situation. So obviously Sam covers the Canucks. This is something that we would have covered under normal circumstances. We didn't in this episode, and the reason being is just that things were only starting to come to light when we did record on Friday night. Uh, things like Vertanen getting placed on leave by the team on Saturday morning didn't happen until the day after. So it, it, it's not us shying away from this conversation. I take pride in not shying away from these conversations on this podcast, and I'm sure it's something that we will talk about going forward. But if you're wondering why there is no mention of the Jake Vertanen situation in this episode, that's why. Uh, but without further ado, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it, of course. Uh, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode with Sam Chang. Hi again, everybody, and welcome. It's another edition of Internal Budget. Brandon Mackey here, decked out in all my Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers gear on the second day of the NFL draft. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at Brandon Mackey underscore. Follow the podcast as well. It's just Internal Budget. And we have another very special guest today. Uh, She is one of the hosts of a fantastic show called The Broadscast, which many of you have heard of. And she has kicked up quite the storm on Twitter today. It's Sam Chang. Sam, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. No problem. This is my first uh, son's podcast. So Probably, probably the first of many after this one. So, I mean, you your coverage is mainly contained within the Vancouver Canucks sphere of things. Uh, and like I said, you really caused a stir last night uh, and even into today by voicing your disapproval of Wayne Simmons fighting Alex Edler. Okay. I. <laughs> so here's the funniest thing. Um, I didn't actually watch the Canucks game yesterday. I was literally just trolling Leafs fans. That'll go over well in Toronto. (laughs) Um, I did not, in fact, see the fight. I was sitting on Twitter and like saw some stupid tweet from someone being like, oh, the Leafs were just sending a message. And I was like, listen, I'm not talking. I'm not saying they can't go after Edler. I'm not saying that he still has COVID or whatever. Although I do think like the long-term effects of COVID are clearly not like well-known. And so for anyone to say, you can't say that they had COVID two and a half weeks ago as an excuse is I think ridiculous, but my point. So what I said was like, yeah, they're sending a message by fighting a 35 year old who had COVID two and a half weeks ago. And like the only point I was trying to make was that a, the hockey code is really dumb and B like, you're not really tough if you're fighting Alex Edler. The man's played 900 games. He's never fought before. Like if you're trying to send a message that you're big and tough, like that's not the guy to do it. So I tweeted that it was like, I thought pretty innocuous and uh, it got a lot of people really mad. Nothing is innocuous on Leafs Twitter. That's if that's one, if there's one lesson I can impart upon you today, it's that. But 
I mean, it was such a stupid thing because, I mean, Edler got suspended. I, I don't think he did it on purpose. You know, I hated seeing that because Zach Hyman's been so great for the Leafs this year and he's been fun to watch. But, you know, Alex Edler, we're not talking about Matt Cook here throwing knees around, you know. So so I just thought the whole thing was ridiculous. And I think you're spot on. I think the hockey code is so stupid that a guy who is a bona fide freak like Wayne Simmons, who nobody wants to fight in the league, um, is going to jump Alex Edler, like the puck moving or defenseman or, you know, now I guess more kind of stay at home defenseman. Like it's just yeah. nonsense to me. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm by no means d- defending the original Neoni. Like it was a bad play, but like you said, I don't think it was intentional. Um, he apologized for it. He was suspended for it. So who cares? And like, I have Zach Hyman on my fantasy team. So too. <laughs> like, I have a vested interest in him not being injured. We're probably the most vested interest in him not being injured. Uh, But I mean, yeah, I think you're spot on. Like my brother is a massive Leafs fan. And so he was not thrilled about the hit, uh, but he was a little, uh, a little more calm about it because the right call was made and Edler was suspended. But I told him, I said, if you want to blame somebody for it, I would blame the NHL for having the Canucks get back in action because that is not a play. That is not a hockey play. That's a tired guy trying to make a hit. And he gets sloppy, his technique slips, and his knee extends and a bad injury happens. Do you kind of agree that it's probably more on the league than anything? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that, you know, in the best of times before they had COVID, the Canucks have a fairly depleted blue line and coming back from coming back from COVID and they didn't even have Nate Schmidt that night. Like it was, like you said, I think it's on the league for pushing them to come back too fast. Yeah. And before we kind of get to the whole broader COVID situation around the Canucks. They are coming off a series where they lost three or four to the Ottawa Senators. And uh, I think we have a few Ottawa Senators fans that listen to this podcast. So was that a result that you were anticipating from that set of games or were you expecting them to handle the Sens easily enough, even with the whole COVID thing in their rearview mirror? It was pretty much exactly what I expected. Like I wouldn't have been surprised if they went 0-4. It would be the most Canucks thing possible to come back from COVID beat the Leafs twice and then lose four straight to the Senators. Um, I mean, it's historically what they've always done is showed up for big games. And then for teams that on paper you think should be easy or like at least equal competitors, they bomb those games. And you know what? The Suns are really fun to watch now. Like Mm -hmm. notwithstanding that, you know, like you're not necessarily doing well in the standings, they're fun to watch. And so, you know, there was nothing surprising about it. It's night and day from the team that started the season that Vancouver, I think, scored, what was it, like 18 goals on in three games or something ridiculous yeah. like that. That's some of the worst hockey I've ever watched in all my time watching or covering this team. From Vancouver's side of things, though, the play of Brayden Holtby has to be a bit of a surprise, though, right? Like, that's a guy who struggled this year. Uh, Thatcher Demko has been the undisputed starter for this Canucks team and then he goes and stands on his head against Toronto and the Sens he's making windmill saves with the pads um the save he made on Nick Paul at the end of the the end of the game the other night was ridiculous I almost fell off my couch I mean that has to be a bit of a surprise for for Canucks fans right it's an absolute surprise I think the Braden Holtby we saw before they had the three weeks off with COVID was pretty much what we expected which was he was not great he was kind of below average what you would expect for an aging backup um the Braden Holtby we've seen since they've come back, like, yeah, you know what? That guy, I'm happy we're paying him like $3 million. Like that, I'm fine with. Is that a guy who's coming back next year, you think? You know what? In an ideal world, I think the best thing for the Canucks is if he plays so well that Seattle actually gets tempted into taking him. Um, That's interesting. 
but you know, at his contract with one more year left, if he comes back, it's, it's not the end of the world, but you know, they've got, they've got Mikey DiPietro waiting in the wings, didn't play a single game in 405 days. Yeah. Finally got sent back down to Utica. They really have to figure out what's going on there. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's, it's kind of win-win for them with Holtby. If he, if he continues playing this way, he's a great backup, um, a little bit expensive, but it is what it is. And if he gets taken, that's also great because it means they've managed to protect some, someone else. Yeah. Is it fair to say that based on what you've seen, the Canucks are kind of hitting that post COVID wall now it's, it's something that we've seen in even in other sports with the Raptors where a bunch of players get COVID and they come back and it's, it's just not the same team, whether it's a lung capacity issue or conditioning or what have you. Uh, do you think that's what's going on in Vancouver right now? Yeah, I think that's absolutely at least a part of it. Um, like, look, I'm not going to say the Canucks were great before they had COVID, but I think, the level of fatigue you're seeing in games and the sloppy play like that absolutely is a factor from COVID. Now, this is a weird team to talk about when you, when you're regarding the Canucks, I had Justin Morissette on the show not long ago, who's a wonderful human, wonderful human being and a great podcast guest too. Uh, But we were talking about how the Vancouver Canucks playoff performance last season and off season has all kind of led up to this point. And I felt like I was in the minority almost, at least here on the East or the Eastern part of Canada, where we're looking at the Canucks going into this season and there's people talking about them as a playoff team or a top of the division team. And I'm like, they lost quite a bit in the off season. Like I, I don't see where the additions came in after the subtractions. Was that the sentiment in Vancouver too? I think what you get in Vancouver is actually a pretty divided fan base. Um, There is a small, I think it's small. There's a small (laughs) and vocal segment of like really diehard optimistic homers who last year were like, the Canucks are a playoff team. They made the playoffs. Jim Betting has a plan. He's doing all the right things. They beat the blues. They made it like they made it to the second round, which was technically the first round. Um, and, you know, somebody somebody suggested to me last year that the Canucks were not that far off from the Vegas Golden Knights, which to me is a completely ridiculous take. And like it's a bit of a wild statement, laughable. Um, and then you've got the other part of the fan base, which I think uh, really thinks the team is not well built, thinks that Jim Benning has like shit the bed for the last seven years, has no plan. Um fundraised to fly a banner last week across downtown Vancouver saying fire betting (laughs) and fully expected the team to regress this year. Um, And so, you know, I don't think there's a consensus about how, about whether they are good or not. I think it's actually pretty divided. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) one thing that's a good segue into my next question, because one thing Justin and I talked about when I had him on the show is we kind of drew attention to these parallels between the Senators and the Canucks. And it's weird in a lot of senses. You're talking about young teams uh, that have a tumultuous relationship with ownership and management at best. Uh, Are you seeing some of the same things? Because when you say the fire bending banner, I think of the GoFundMe for the Melnick out billboards around Ottawa, uh, which was not well received by the team, but uh, I'm seeing kind of some of the same things. Do, Do you get that? Do you get that same sense? There are definitely a lot of parallels, I would say, and you know, you you'll, you know better than me, but 
I get the sense whenever I kind of pop into Sun's Twitter that it's a really fun fan base. Like I love that with <laughs> Melnick out, you guys raised what, $15,000 in 12 hours? Something like that, like, yeah. It was, it was wild. Whereas I think with the Canucks, there's a little more infighting. Like we rate, I think they raised like $4,000 from the, from the banner, but it was like $2,000 was raised by people who wanted the banner up and $2,000 was raised by people who were like, the banner is stupid and a waste of your money. And we're going to raise money for charity instead because they like gym betting. Um, there seems to be more pro management sentiment here for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are definitely a lot of parallels. I do think the sense fan base is way more fun and way more chill. I think a pro- that is a product of what they've gone through over the past few years. Uh, this has not always been a fun fan base, especially over the last few seasons when uh, when the Carlson trade was happening and when yeah. the Stone trade happened. There was a lot of that same infighting that you're talking about. There were people who really believed in management's vision, and there were people who were pissed beyond belief that those guys were gone. Um, so I think that's where the whole send sickos thing has obviously evolved from too, where you have to be a sick person to cheer for this team. And sense fans have just kind of accepted their lot in life. And uh, they're just going to keep cheering for this team come what may. Uh, Vancouver though is in a very different spot because this is a team who, you know, they, they aren't as good as the Vegas Golden Knights and they weren't last year, but they almost beat them. Like they came pretty close and, you know, there were things that played into that. Uh, Vegas got goalied for the most part of that series, but they're in a drastically different spot from Ottawa, who is again going to probably be a draft lottery team despite the progress they've made this year. They're a team that's maybe eyeing the playoffs next season. Uh, For Vancouver, it seems like their ambitions may have got a little bit ahead of them. Like, does, does that make sense from an outside assessment? Yeah, I think that makes absolute sense. I think that landing Pedersen and Hughes and having them develop kind of beyond what anyone could have reasonably expected and at the speed that they have really kind of threw a wrench in their plans, whatever those plans were, or if they had any plans. Um, And I think, I think the problem with the Canucks is they never committed to being a lottery team. The years that they were a lottery team, it was purely accidental. Like Benning's stated mission was to make the playoffs and they just ended up sucking and they got those, they got those picks, but they've always just kind of stuck themselves in the middle. And so they never get a particularly high pick unless they accidentally tanked. And then they thought they were better than they were. And I think they were misled last year by their playoff success. Um, And, you know, I think Markstrom playing the way he did for two years and then Demko's play against Vegas in the bubble really masked a lot of the actual depth issues on the rest of the roster. But I think that any team that depends that much on your goalie standing on his head every single night, like that is just not a good recipe for success. It's not sustainable. No. And, but, but that's the thing that gets me though, is this is a team that was made a good run in the playoffs last year, a run that I didn't expect them to make. Uh, why are you parting with Tyler Toffoli and all these other players that were so critical to your success and have gone on to have success elsewhere? I know you probably don't have a concrete answer as to why, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, If anyone can actually answer that question, like that would be incredible because 
I believe the last time Jim was asked, he, he said on the radio that he ran out of time on the Toffoli contract because they were dealing with other things, primarily trying to land Oliver Ackman Larson, which was absurd. Um, and you know what? I think a lot of their issues come from the fact that they never reckon they part of the issue with them continuing to try to compete and put themselves in the playoffs without ever fully rebuilding was that they dumped all this money into bringing in free agents. This is a team that didn't make the playoffs for four straight years, but somehow had no cap space at the end of it. Like none of this lines up with any kind of reasonable planning. And so the reason that they let those players go, I, it's just poor planning. Like they don't, they don't manage their team well. Mm-hmm. And then they talk about trading Brock Besser in the off season. It sounded like that got pretty close to happening and who knows, maybe it'll still happen this summer, but like, I, I, I just don't get it. I, Look, when Ottawa traded their players, there was a clear reasoning as to why. Whether or not fans agreed with it, there was a team that had bottomed out. It it was guys that, frankly, ownership and the the team was not interested in paying long-term. Regardless of what you may hear, none of those guys wanted to leave Ottawa at any point. Um, But it worked out in the sense that the team was bottoming out anyway. The team had hit a point of regression after the 2017 playoffs, which... Even then, they lucked. A lot of that was luck getting as far as they did and good goaltending from Craig Anderson. But look what they gained from it. Uh, Brady Kachuk, Josh Norris, Tim Stutzla, um, and the list goes on. Uh, Jacob Bernard Docker. I could I could literally prattle on all day about it. Uh, I'm looking at Vancouver, who just signed Tanner Pearson to a three-year extension. Like, <laughs> I, I know we're kind of belaboring the same point here, but it feels like teams that are very close to the same spot organizationally but have very different perceptions about where they are. Yeah. I mean, when Ottawa bottomed out like two years ago, Pierre Dorian got like what, 15, 15 picks for the next Something season. Something like that. Yeah. Like they I had, it was an outrageous number. I think they had nine picks in the first three rounds last year. Yeah. 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 Um, in the last seven years since Jim Benning's taken over, and this is, this is a guy who is a scout who everyone says his strength is scouting and drafting. Everyone says, oh, he got Pedersen, he got Hughes, he's great at the draft. Has never committed to rebuilding the team. Has traded away more firsts than he's acquired. And in the seven years, you know, you get seven, you get seven picks every year. He's never, they're at net zero. They've had, like in the years that they've traded picks away, they've acquired those back, but they've never acquired more picks than they've traded away. Like they don't, they've had 49 picks in the last seven years, which is what they would have done if they had done nothing, except that of those 49 picks, he traded away a couple of the firsts and he mostly acquired fifth, sixth and seventh round picks. So they were overall worse off. And it's like, you're supposed to be good at drafting. So what is the plan here? Like none of this makes any sense. Yeah, it's just startling. And we keep talking about the parallels, but I saw a lot of the same things from Ottawa earlier in the decade when um, they underwent their first real rebuild uh, after the loss of Danny Heatley and the team really started to tank. Um, So they trade all these guys like Mike Fisher and Chris Kelly, and they commit to this rebuild, rebuilding around the core of, of Jason Spezza and Daniel Alfredson and Eric Carlson. And they make the playoffs earlier than expected and it's the pesky sends thing. And then all of a sudden they think they're a contender. So they start adding assets instead of getting rid of them. And then we go to 2015 with the Hamburglar run. That was a team that should have been in the lottery conversation for Connor McDavid. They somehow go on one of the craziest 
runs of all time, end up losing in the first round of the playoffs. And now here we are. The closest they got was 2017, which it says a lot about the, the success of this franchise when your one of your most cherished moments is a double overtime game seven loss in the Eastern Conference Finals to a rival. It's just it just sucks. But I'm, I'm going to have to go back to therapy if I keep talking about this. <laughs> but I mean, what was the biggest loss? for the Canucks going into this year? Uh, was it Toffoli? Was it Markstrom? Like who's one person you could point to and say they would be maybe not a playoff team, but a markedly better one with this. Had they not let this guy go. I honestly don't think there's like one person. I actually think, I mean, it, it should have been Markstrom, but the way it's played out, he hasn't been great in Calgary and Demko has been fantastic. So yeah, Demko's that's kind of been a wash. Um, to fully probably like, could you, assuming he scores at the same pace, could they use 25 goals? Yeah. Like absolutely. Who couldn't, um, you know, even if to fully scored at half the rate that he's been scoring at with the Habs, which I think would probably be like a very conservative guess. Um, he would, I think currently be third or fourth in scoring on the Canucks. So to is probably the safest bet to say he would have made a difference. But I actually think the biggest issue with this team is they don't have a blue line. Like, notwithstanding that Quinn Hughes is fantastic, he's primarily an offensive defenseman. He hasn't been great defensively this year. Um, Hamannick's been good uh, when he isn't injured. Uh, Schmidt's been good. But you look at that blue line overall, and, you know, I'm not saying they should have kept Jordy Ben. Like, it doesn't really matter one way or the other. But they don't have what I would consider a competitive NHL blue line. And I think that's going to be a huge issue for them in years to come, especially when they have to go up against Vegas and Colorado year after year, if they want to come out of the West. Mm -hmm. The Ottawa senators are living proof that you're not going to function with a subpar blue line. I mean, that was their, that was their bugaboo at the beginning of the year to say nothing of the fact that to say nothing of the fact that Matt Murray couldn't stop a beach ball and nor could Marcus Hoberg. Um, they just, they did not have an adequate blue line. Um, Erica Branson was playing top pairing minutes and someone who Vancouver Canucks fans are, are painfully aware of um, with no disrespect to a great guy in Erica Branson. But I, I, I'm really curious to kind of probe more into this almost kind of upheaval that's going on in the Canucks fan base. Uh, Cause it reminds me a lot of how things really started to turn against Ottawa ownership and management. When did this, malcontent begin to start like when did people really start getting annoyed with ownership and I guess management kind of as an extension of that I think the management thing has been going on for quite some time now like years um you could probably make the argument that there were the same divides when Mike Gillis was here especially all these people mentioned even when you know whether it's Jim Benning or not I would say that the animosity towards Benning has probably really picked up over the last couple of years um, even last year when they were a bubble team, um, you know, there was a massive debate about whether they should be trying to tank, um, to try to move up in the draft or whether they should try to make a run in the bubble. Um, part of the issue with Benning is that over the last few years, he's given, he's just not great in front of the camera. He's really not a good communicator. And he just puts his foot in his mouth all the time. Like he absolutely makes things worse for himself than it has to be. Um, And the more interviews he's given kind of the worse it's gotten. I would say with, 
with ownership, it's really been the last few years. I think if you think back to 2011 and when the Canucks were winning, they had this reputation of being a first-class organization, spent a lot on players, did everything right. And for whatever reason, in the last few years, that view has really shifted. Um, and I think the general view over the last few years, especially since uh, Trevor, Linden, Trevor Linden uh left amicably in quotes slash was fired. Um, in the last few years, I think there's been growing sentiment that the owners are interfering way too much with decision-making. Um, and really that Jim Benning is kind of a bit of a lapdog slash puppet and that ownership is really running the team. Um, hasn't really helped with Francesco Aquilini's occasional random post-game tweets um, that he just gets shredded for. Uh, So yeah, I think for whatever reason in the last few years, there seems to have been a 180 of ownership going from like, they were great owners to now people are like, uh, I don't know, you could take it or leave it. I've kind of been laughing this whole time because had I not known you were talking about the Vancouver Canucks, I could literally transplant everything you said to Ottawa. Like if you took the names out, it's the same. You have a GM who has put his foot in his mouth uh, in the media. Uh, Pierre Dorian very infamously said uh, after Mark Stone was traded, uh, I know fans are attached to these players, but it's like when, when you break up with your girlfriend, you go get a new girlfriend, which fans loved. It went over really well. Um, and you still don't, you don't hear about it today at all. And then you have the beloved franchise icon now in the front office who leaves under mysterious circumstances, Trevor Linden, Daniel Alfredson. It's the same thing. Like, so weird. It is like I, when Justin and I talked about it, we didn't even like go this deep into it, but like, I'm like seeing it's, it's weird. It's like the Da Vinci code is happening in front of me. Like, I, I, I don't know, maybe there's something about these, these Canadian teams, but I, I'm really, really curious as to who you think more vitriol has been directed at. Is it Jim Benning or is it Francesco Aquilini? And is that, it's, and is it? It's right absolutely to- Jim Benning. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> yeah. He, he takes most of the heat in this market. I remember when, oh man, I remember when Ottawa got Burroughs from Vancouver and they traded Jonathan Dolan for him and not didn't go over great in Ottawa because the Senators gave up a lot then. Obviously, it's yeah. turned out okay now. But uh, there were people who were like, how did Dorian get fleeced by Jim Benning <laughs> of all the GMs to lose a trade to? It's, it's nuts, but... I'm curious as to who you think it should be directed at. Um, are both sides equally to blame or is it more bending? Is it more ownership? I know it's difficult when you're not a fly on the wall for these conversations, but, but if you could point the finger at one person and say, you got to get the hell out of town. Like who's, who is it for you? Honestly, at this point it is betting. Um, I think that any, with the caveat that any new GM who gets hired comes in with a vision and, you know, gets gets to like actually make the decisions um it's not realistic to get rid of the owner as you know yes it is not but the problem with the betting issue is that you know to the extent that he is a lapdog and that he's letting ownership make decisions whether or not that's true if it is true you know he frankly has to be the type of gm who's like you hired me. I know how to do my job. Let me do my job and not just be willing to eat terrible decisions from ownership. Like that, that's just not good for anyone, including himself. Um, but I think for the PR gaffes alone, like 
admitting that, you know, they're, they're day by day, that they ran out of time on Tyler Toffoli, like those news clips that you can just play over and over again, saying that, saying in 2014 that they thought they could turn the team around in a hurry. And then this year saying, oh, I think we'll compete in another two years. Like just those little things, he's just not, that's part of being a good GM is being able to communicate with the fan base and with media. And he just can't do it. It was two to three years, he said, right? Like yeah. that's not what fans want to hear after you just took the Vegas Golden Knights, the seven games, a team that should have won the Stanley Cup last year in my mind. But but well, I mean, he also said in the same interview, somebody asked about Toffoli and Pearson and he was like, well, you win Stanley Cups with guys who are 25 to 35. It's like, okay, well, the general age range in the, on an NHL team is 19 to 43. Why don't you just say that? Like you yeah. win with guys of every age. That's how hockey works. 25 to 35. That's a 10 year age gap. What are you talking about? Yeah, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And I mean, oh man, I'm curious as to where you think the Canucks are organizationally. Um, when I talked to Justin, we both agreed that the Canucks and the Senators are not far apart, um, while also both agreeing that they should be far apart at this point. The Canucks should be miles ahead of the Ottawa Senators right now. Uh, and granted, you know, the Sens just took three of four against the Canucks team that's coming off of a COVID outbreak and didn't have Elias Pettersson for those games and had Demko for one of those games, though he didn't play terrific. Do you kind of buy into that same thing? Like, do you still still see the Canucks as being ahead of Ottawa or is the gap getting closer? I think the gap's getting closer. I absolutely agree the Canucks should be way further ahead. Like, if you think about the fact that Joe Sackick took over the Colorado Avalanche in 2013, he's had one year more than uh, oh, Jim Cutting. Oh, God, I didn't even... <laughs> I didn't even think of that. That's nuts. Yeah, it's a one-year difference. Um, they should be way far ahead, but I think I think they're pretty close. I think the Suns are going to make a pretty rapid climb in the next little bit. I could see that too. Um, I think from an outside perspective, someone who doesn't watch the Canucks day in, day and day out, and doesn't quite have a grasp of the organizational goings on. They look at this team and they see Elias Patterson and they see Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser and uh, Thatcher Demko. And they think that's a playoff team. Like that's a team that's going to go deep and it probably should. Um, so explain to someone who doesn't watch the Canucks night in and night out. Why has this team failed to get it together with such a solid young core in place? I mean, having a young core, is important and it's necessary, but it's not enough to get you over the line, right? Like right. you look at, look at the Leafs for the last few years. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to top that core. Look at the Oilers with Dreisaitl and McDavid. Like you can have the best young players, but you need to have depth and you need to have a well-rounded lineup. Like you need to be able to roll four lines the way Colorado and Vegas can. And when you spend $28 million on your bottom six players who are not good, like you don't really have a lot to work with in terms of building your blue line and finding a third line that can actually score and isn't just like waiver wire pickups from other teams. Like when you're picking up Jimmy VC and Travis Boyd from the Leafs because they can't get in the lineup and they're on the waiver and you're putting them onto your second and third line, like that says everything you need to know about where they're at in terms of their depth. Mm-hmm. Is, is it a blue line thing? I know we talked about that a little earlier, but 
I mean, honestly, at this point, like I might even be more inclined to take Ottawa's blue line over the Canucks. Um, I, like there are guys like Nikita Zaitsev who have been rightly criticized over the past few years. But I think if you look at the advanced metrics, Thomas Shabbat uh, is doing a little bit better than Quinn Hughes and rightfully so Shabbat's the older of the two. Um, and even from there with the young core coming in, like guys like Jacob Bernard Docker and Jake Sanderson, who they just drafted this year, uh, what's the cupboard looking like for the Canucks? Like is the future outlook of the blue line bleak or is it like, is it the guys that they have right now? I think it's pretty bleak. I, it makes me laugh because there's a segment of the Canucks fan base that says, you know, they have one of the deepest prospect pools. And it's like, if you go back three years and you're counting Patterson and Hughes as part of the prospects, sure. But (laughs) they've graduated. That doesn't count. You don't get to point to that. Um, They've got some really good forwards coming up. Obviously, Hoaglinder's been really good this year. Um, Pud Colson should join the team next year, and he should be another really great pick. Looks but like in terms done. of defensemen, they're kind of, I think, still waiting for Uolevi to pan out, and he's been fine. He's been he's been decent. Um, Jack Rathbone is probably their best blue line prospect, and he should be really good. But other than that, you know, they've got Jet Wu coming up, and a bunch of other defensemen who are who are good and like fans like them, but they're not blue chip prospects, right? Like it's not like Colorado having Kale McCarr followed by Bowen Byram followed by, I just like, I can't, I can't even think yeah. about the Colorado blue line. Because yeah. Like, like who, who even is me. right? Like nobody's Colorado. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of prospects, they've got some decent guys, but they're not guys who are going to make the jump right away and make a huge impact the way Hughes and Pedersen did. Like, Mm-hmm. Maybe Pod Colson will do that, but other than that, I really don't think they've got somebody like that. Yeah. When when you say Benning is telling people that they're going to be contending in two to three years, I mean that's those are all guys who are two to three years away. <laughs> so you're going to be contending when your core prospects are just coming into the league. Guys like Bo Horvat are at the end of their prime. Um, Tanner Pearson is going to be on like year two or three of his contract extension that was signed for some reason. I mean. I don't see the organizational vision and I know you don't have a lot of faith in it either, but if I could make you the GM of the Vancouver Canucks right now, and you could make one move today, what would it be? I don't even know where to start. That's actually like, (laughs) there's, there's just so much wrong with the construction of this team. I don't know how you would start. Like, I think part of the reason he says two years, and I think it's going to take two years regardless of whether he gets fired or not, is that that's when all of his bad contracts come off the books. And until that happens, they just don't have a lot of room to maneuver. Yeah. Um, I think if I were them right now, I would just bite the bullet on not being very competitive and play, you know, like there was no reason not to play Di Pietro for a few games. There's no reason not to, you know, earlier the, in the week, fans were complaining that they weren't playing Coleland and Travis Green's explanation was, you know, I'm going to play the guys who give us a chance to win. And it's like, well, like look at, <laughs> look at reality. And frankly, Coleland is not worse off than any of your bottom six guys. And they played him the other night and he was better than most of those guys. He's better than Jimmy VC. Mm-hmm. And there's this reluctance to play the young guys because, Oh, they might lose. And it's like, well, your team isn't that good. It doesn't really matter if you lose right now. Mm-hmm. And and the thing with, again, I'm shaking my head because DJ Smith said the same thing about not playing Jacob Bernard Docker last week. And it's, and for Ottawa, it's a totally different thing because 
they're not in a position where they're going to win. And there are certain prospects that they are fine with throwing into the fire. Shane Pinto's played every game save for like two since he signed. And he hasn't, I think he's played like six in a row. He's killing penalties. He's playing third line minutes. He's getting minutes against other teams, top lines. And you have a guy like Bernard Docker who can't even get in the lineup and he's not worse than Josh Brown or whoever the senators are deploying on their third pairing. So it, it is so strange to me. Like sometimes the philosophy around these teams and the roster construction. Um, and I mean, like, it, it, I guess Vancouver is just Ottawa West or vice versa or whatever. Uh, but one thing that has been a point of concern for senators fans is getting long-term contracts done. Um, Thomas Shabbat signing an eight by eight year deal after his career season, it was like out of left field. Like there weren't many people in Ottawa who saw that coming. Um, Colin White getting, uh, I think it's four years or six years, something like that. And then, uh, and now the attention focuses to Brady Kachuk, who everyone kind of expects is going to be a little more difficult than getting those two guys signed. Uh, All of this is a roundabout way of asking, when your window of contention is two to three years away in Vancouver, is there fear about getting guys like Elias Pettersson uh, locked up long-term or Quinn Hughes for that matter? I think there's absolutely concern. It seems to me like the most recent discussion has been that has been an assumption that they'll sign bridge contracts. Um, If you look at, I mean, the Canucks cap space situation is actually incredible incredibly bad for how bad the team also is. Um, And people are always like, well, you know, like they're going to sign Pedersen and Hughes and it'll be fine. Like they don't have cap problems. And what people don't understand is like, when you say they have cap problems, it's that you should be in a position given how bad they've been. You should have enough cap space to lock up your two key players long-term eight-year contracts. Like that should be, that, that should be your absolute priority. And the fact that they've spent so much money on aging bottom six forwards that they can't afford to lock them up to eight-year contracts and they're probably going to have to give them bridge contracts. Like to me, that's just because you comply with your cap doesn't mean you don't have cap issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am concerned. I don't think they'll be able to assign them to long-term contracts. I think they'll end up giving them shorter term deals. And I think that's going to come back to bite them in three or four years. Mm-hmm. Do you think those Brock Besser trade talks get revisited this summer then? I don't think Brock's going anywhere. No. I mean, there are a lot of people in Ottawa who wouldn't mind him. If, if, we, if you want help with your cap situation, we got plenty of cap space over here. I think last year when he was still kind of feeling the after effects of that wrist injury that he's had for several years, um, plus the injury uh, that he took when he collided with Cal Clutterbuck, um, he wasn't great last year. Mm-hmm. And I think for the first few years of his bridge contract, Um, people kind of thought, you know, he's never, he's not going to be as good as he was in his rookie season and he's never going to hit that ceiling. He came into this season, um, David Quadrelli on Canucks Army did a great interview with Besser early in the season and wrote an article about how he thought Besser was going to return to form and so did Besser because he said his wrist and his body felt the best he had since his rookie year. And he's been like a different player this year. He's been unbelievable. And I just, I don't think... I don't think there's any appetite on the part of fans or management to move him. Um, he's probably one of their only movable pieces, but at the same time, he's only, he's one of the only real mm-hmm. assets they have. So, you know, if they're going to move him, like, what are you getting back for him? Yeah. I mean, I know people in Ottawa that would offer up a pretty penny for him, but that's, that's just me spitballing. I, I do want to talk a bit about the broadcast because it is such a unique thing that you do, of course, with Georgia Mallory and Vanessa, uh, 
hockey podcasts run exclusively by women and in a lot of ways for women, they're few and far between. Uh, I don't think I'm, you know, out of pocket saying that, but how did the idea for it come about, especially when you're talking about, you know, four people coming together for it? And what's the journey been like? Because you've gone from this little podcast that was kind of contained in the Vancouver side of things for the most part. And now you're one of like the major podcasts in, in the hockey, uh, in the hockey side of things. So, so talk to me a little bit about how the broadcast came to be. Yeah. So when we started, there were five of us. Um, it was the four you named plus Danny, um, who isn't currently uh, doing any of our shows. She's on a little break. Um, we kind of started in a group chat last year. Um, we had all met on Twitter. We hadn't met in person and I can't remember why we started the group chat, but I think it was actually to talk about reality TV shows, but we had a group chat going just to talk about hockey. And then the Brandon Leipzig uh, DMs got leaked and we were talking about the coverage of it and saying how a lot of the mainstream hockey media covering it was really from kind of a male perspective um, and that there really wasn't any kind of women-led discussion about about the whole situation. And from there, we kind of talked about maybe starting a blog, um, ultimately decided writing is <laughs> way, way too much work. Um, then eventually, like a few months later, kind of kicked around the idea of maybe doing a podcast. Um, and then kind of right before the bubble, we were like, should we do this or not? If we're going to do this, we should start in time for the bubble. And so one day we kind of just said, yeah, let's throw together a little teaser video um, kind of based on the Kraken uh, announcement. And so Vanessa pulled that together and we released it. I think we had, I think we had 1500 followers in the first 10 days yeah. before we released an episode, which is just like completely nuts. Like we thought when we were talking about it, we get like maybe 200 listeners mm-hmm. um, and it kind of, it just, I think we just came along at the right time. Um, and people were so starved in quarantine last year for content and like coming along right before the bubble. And we all like, I think we all tweet quite a lot. And so we all separately had quite a lot of followers already. It just, it worked out really well. And it kind of, it kind of just blew up in a way mm-hmm. we didn't expect. Yeah. And it's such a great niche that you're into. You mentioned that there was an appetite for content, but I think hockey's undergoing somewhat of a, I don't want to say a revolution because that makes it sound more dramatic and more, uh, more impactful than it's been, but there does seem to be a huge push among hockey fans right now to, for more, um, social awareness and to make hockey a more inclusive game for everybody. I mean, we all hear hockey is for everyone. Our mutual friend Brock McGillis has made his feelings on hockey is for everyone very clear. And I, and I am inclined to agree, even though Brock's a bit of a goof, but, uh, but, uh, but no, like there is, there is something to what you have done. Um, you have made it a show that has, that is going out of its way to push these kind of boundaries and be a little more accessible, but you haven't done it in a way that's like a punch you in the face kind of shocking type sort of fashion. Uh, has that been a conscious effort on the part of you, I guess you five now you four, uh, or, or is it has just been kind of this organic effect? Um, I think we went into it intending to create a space that was inclusive for everyone, um, especially new fans and especially kind of non-traditional fans. And, you know, that's not to say traditional fans aren't welcome as well. Like we want to be 
we want to be something that appeals to everyone, mm-hmm. um, which isn't always doable. But I think what we try to do is cater to the principles that have always been important to us. So making space for queer fans, making space for trans fans, making space for women fans, um, and just people who are generally overlooked or marginalized by the NHL um, and by hockey in general. So that's something that's always been important to us. But I think the way that we've done it is just, it's just kind of happened organically. Like we talk about topics we want to include, but it's not, I don't think we've really, I don't think we've really done anything differently in particular, just to be able to do that. We just make Mm -hmm. sure that we're thoughtful about what we're saying and we think about who, who our audience is and who we interact with. And it's, I think it's something that's been pretty natural for us. Um, Whether or not it is punching people in the face, I'm sure there are people who disagree with you. Yeah. Uh, I actually did kind of want to, want to go into that a little bit because the way I discovered the broadcast, unfortunately enough was all the hate you were getting last summer. It was, it it was insane. Uh, And it's a shitty thing to say because I, the show is great. And the, you, the four of you do such a great job uh, that, you know, the way I had to kind of stumble upon it was seeing all of these hate tweets and harassment that you were getting. And um, I know Georgia in particular has got it pretty bad from some, you know, sad loser troll accounts, but what has that been like to deal with? Because I mean, you know, every time someone talks about Barstool, like every time I talk about, you know, things like Barstool, I get hate messages and replies and I get people trying to hack my email and accounts and stuff like it. It's insane. But I can't imagine what it's been like for four women in a space that women have not historically been welcome. Um, So talk to me a little bit about some of the vitriol that you've, that you've encountered and, uh, and how you've kept kind of pushing through it. Yeah, I think it's, we're kind of on a spectrum. I would say Vanessa and Mallory are probably better at ignoring those things and um, they're less confrontational than I'd say me and Georgia. Uh, So I think usually they tend to, they do a better job of just blocking and muting people. Um, we had a conversation at the start because I think George and I used to try to fight people on the podcasting account and we made a decision as a group that there would be no fighting trolls on, on the main account. Um, we, you can do it from your own account if you want to. Um, that's certainly my approach. I think, um, that's always just something that's come naturally to me on Twitter. I don't, if somebody's going to come for me personally, I, I just, I just quote tweet them. It happens every time. It's compulsive. I can't stop myself from doing it. It's really bad. Like people are like, why are you quote tweeting a guy with like 10 followers who's clearly a troll? I'm like, I just, it just happens. Like sometimes I just think of a comeback and I just hit tweet before I think about it. Um, Part of it is that, you know, people are like, just ignore the trolls. It'll go away. It doesn't go away. No. It just means that other people don't see it. Um, it really bothers me when people say ignore the trolls and like don't give them don't give them any time and like don't give them any attention. That's what they want. And it's like, well, no, what they want is to get under your skin. And whether I block them or whether I respond to them, you know, they're gonna think that they're winning regardless. So why don't I just do what I feel like in a particular moment? If I feel like standing up for myself and pushing back, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And anytime people are like just you know, like ignore it. My, my general thought is that it's because it makes people uncomfortable having to see what we have to put up with. 
but I think that's important. And I think we've had, we've had a number of listeners, especially younger women say to us, you know, like it means a lot to me to see that because now I feel better. I, I don't feel like I'm alone. I don't feel like I'm the only person getting this kind of harassment and I feel okay pushing back because I feel like there's somebody else out there who sees that, or I feel okay blocking them. And, you know, to me, that's what I care about more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also just been really important in terms of the conversation that's happened around it. Like when Georgia, Georgia's back on Twitter now, but in December, she had a series of really, really bad um, trolls harassing her and like yeah. taking photos from her personal account. And it was really, really screwed up. Um, and she shared all of that and then was like, I just have to log off because I feel completely desensitized and objectified. And I think it took something like that to push a lot of kind of local media members, local fans who had always been in their DMs kind of being like, love what you're doing, totally support you, but like didn't say anything out loud. And it kind of shifted the conversation to what can we do as a community to push back against trolls? And I think I think that was a really important conversation to have. And to the extent that that happened because people shared what was happening, I, I think that was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And for what it's worth, I think the very existence of the broadcast is something that's making hockey more accessible, but also kind of highlighting just some of the behavior that goes on for people that are not straight white males like myself. Like it's just not always an accessible place for people that don't look like me, frankly. Um, so, so I'm glad that you guys are out there for that reason. Um, and you've done some amazing episodes, like the guests you've had, uh, the Mott girl summer trend last summer, uh, where Tyler Mott joined the show and Mark Borbietsky and Roman Yossi, which we were talking about before, you know, before we recorded, uh, talk to me a little bit about the experiences that, what that's been like because to go from a show that only existed just last summer and then interviewing the guy who won the freaking Norris trophy or should have won. I don't know if he did, but did he win it last year? He did. He did yeah. yeah. He did. So yeah. So interviewing the Norris trophy winner and Mark Borowiecki, who's an all time great human, the Norris trophy winners of great humans. Um, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. It's been wild. Um, the mock girl summer thing is something we're really proud of. It was, we were recording episodes while we were watching the Canucks play last year and Tyler Mott had a great game where he scored two goals. Um, and so we named the episode Mott Girl Summer and that one just really blew up. So we started selling merch and he ended up buying the merch um, because we donated all of the proceeds to mental health initiatives in Michigan, which is his home state and around Vancouver. Um, and so he saw that and retweeted it and was showing it on his Instagram. So we just thought we'd reach out to him and see if he'd come on. And he agreed to come on, which was amazing. Um, with the with Roman Yossi and Mark Borgietsky, it, it was actually really funny. It happened after um, we had been through a really rough patch of trolls and being harassed in December. And we had this random DM request from the National Predators PR account. And like, we legitimately thought we were being pranked. It was right. like, we just, they wanted to offer us players for the podcast as a show of support. And we were like, like, you gotta be joking. And then we thought like, yeah, like we'll take it, like whoever it is. And then they were like, oh yeah, Mark Borowiecki and Roman Yossi. And we're like, <laughs> like what? Um, and so we did an interview with them in early January and 
they were fantastic. Um, I am now such a huge Boro fan. Like, oh, I just like he was so well spoken and so thoughtful and just like a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. He's he's a salt of the earth guy. I mean, everything going back to what he did for for Justin and with no press whatsoever. I mean, yeah. I think. I, you know, not to like pump my own tires, but I think I was the first one to actually say like, Hey, this guy's doing this. Like yeah. this is deserving of some recognition. Um, really just a all around great human. Um, and it's been like a, such a meteoric rise for the broadcast. I mean, you said yeah. 1500 followers in 10 days. I'm getting a little jealous because I think internal budget's not even at 400 yet, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. So I, I has it, are there any moments where you kind of sit back and go, whoa, like this is blown up overnight? Yeah, I think it happens all the time, probably a little bit less recently. It's things have kind of settled down. Um, but the first, the first couple of months, like we did, we had like requests from local TV stations. Um, Steve Ewan from the Vancouver province wrote a piece on podcasts and was, you know, he's been a great supporter of the, of the show. Um, we just had, a really random like media surface around us when it first started, which was totally crazy. Um, I think the first, the first couple of times we had big guests and hit like really big listener numbers. That was, you know, like we think, we think that we're like talking to like 200 people when we're recording and then you look at the numbers and you're like, I, I can't think about it. Right. Because yeah. if you think about how you're listening, you're like, this is a really uncomfortable thing. For sure. Um, And definitely, I think, I think the best part has been the amount of engagement we get with fans from other fan bases and um, how much fun other people seem to be having listening to it and kind of interacting with us on Twitter. And it's, yeah, I think those are the moments I pinch myself the most where it's like, okay, this is, this is actually happening. Sam, this has been wonderful. Uh, I am wondering before I let you go what's next for the broadcast? Uh, is it just one of those things where we're going to keep continuing being ourselves or do you have any kind of exciting plans, anything that you're looking at, uh, looking at introducing in the future? Like I, I know our, my listeners in particular would love to hear about it. Um, we're in a little bit of a transition phase right now. Obviously Danny's taken a step back. Vanessa is going to school full-time right now. So she's also taken a step back. So we're trying out, um, the last few episodes have been just me, Mallory and Georgia. And so it's going to be like that for the next little bit. So we're trying out um, a few different things and always trying to improve the format and structure of the show. Um, I think we've, we've been talking about either getting some sponsors or starting a Patreon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, those are kind of the next things on the horizon. But for now, I think we're kind of enjoying having a bit of a, a slower, slower pace right now. Sometimes that's the best. And I think for what it's worth that uh, you would get a ton of supporters if you decided to go the the Patreon route. Uh, But Sam Chang, thank you so much for coming on Internal Budget. It has been a pleasure talking with you. I'm glad we finally got to do it. And uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Why don't you tell the people where they can find you at? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at SamanthaCP underscore or at BroadcastPod. Folks, check out both of them on Twitter and make sure you listen to the broadcast. It's a hell of a lot better than this show. What are you doing here? Stop wasting your time. Go listen to the broadcast. But before you do that, make sure you like Internal Budget, share with your friends, download, subscribe, rate five stars, all the little things that go a long way. They are greatly appreciated. Thank you for tuning in once again. Please continue to stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Take care, everybody.